Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Andrew Leeds, who will discuss his work with EMDR therapy. Andrew Leeds, Ph.D., is a licensed psychologist with over 40 years of private practice experience. He has conducted EMDR training for 13,000 clinicians in the USA, Canada, Europe, and Japan, and has presented at numerous conferences. He serves on the Journal of EMDR Editorial Board and is Director of Training for Sonoma Psychotherapy Training Institute, offering EMDRIA and EMDR Europe basic training in EMDR. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Well, hello everybody. I am here again with the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And I'm really excited about my guest today, Dr. Andrew Leeds. Um, Dr. Leeds uh, works as a licensed psychologist um, in California and has a private practice and also does um, a lot of teaching and consulting. He's also a marriage and family therapist um, and Andrea approved consultant and an instructor for EMDR. I wanted to bring some of his work to the audience today because of the very special and unique overlap he has in terms of understanding a person's attachment history and how that might impact case conceptualization for EMDR treatment. So Dr. Leeds, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure to join you. So um, I think that um, one of the things that I, I wanted to start out asking you about was, you know, why you think understanding maybe something about a person's own attachment history is important to consider when you're you're bringing your uh, case conceptualization together in terms of EMDR. Why well, I, I think that understanding attachment organization is essential for all psychotherapists who are doing depth work, and certainly EMDR therapy reaches people at a very deep level psychologically and neurobiologically. Mm-hmm. But it has particular. A specific interest to EMDR therapists because attachment organization has a direct impact on more thought before we get started. And so I'd, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts about that. Well, EMDR therapy is viewed very differently by different clinicians. Some people think that EMDR therapy is just this really simple technique where you have people think about something that bothers them and then move their eyes back and forth and then it doesn't bother them as much. And it's just something that you can add, kind of add on to whatever other type of therapy you're doing, kind of as this little simple technique. Other clinicians understand that EMDR therapy is an entire approach to therapy and that it can have very powerful beneficial effects, but it can also cause a lot of adverse side effects and complications. Trying to make sure that you understand who this person is before you offer them reprocessing with EMDR is essential to assuring that the patient 
has a productive experience and makes consistent progress while avoiding potential complications. And to be able to predict that, clinicians need to develop a strong case formulation. Not just sort of a history of traumatic events, but a deeper understanding of the inner organization of this person. And so that's part of why I think case formulation is, is really helpful. Mm-hmm. You can avoid potential complications when you have a good case formulation. You can avoid um, producing certain kinds of unwanted side effects. <clears throat> and you can make the treatment more efficient, that is reduce the total number of sessions that are necessary when you have a strong case formulation. And if you were to pick out like two or three points that you think are, are pretty important to look at before starting treatment in terms of case formulation or, or, formulation or are um, being overlooked, what are some things that, that you would wanna mention that clinicians should really be, be pausing and thinking about a little bit more than they are? Well, to me, there are three main elements that make up a case formulation. The first is the adaptive information processing model itself that underpins the use of EMDR therapy. The second is attachment theory. And the third is the theory of structural dissociation of the personality. These are the three broad elements. Now in the AIP model, the adaptive information processing model, we understand that earlier life experiences can be either stored adaptively or maladaptively. And when they're maladaptively stored, like many traumatic experiences are, they produce symptoms. They produce, in the form of PTSD, they produce intrusive memories that the person doesn't want to be thinking about, nightmares, avoidant behavior. But in other conditions, they can produce other kinds of symptoms. And so we need to understand the history of the person and the history of their symptoms to understand what life experiences led to the development of their symptoms, what what experiences are stored maladaptively, as well as what experiences are adaptively stored in the form of what we call resources that can be drawn upon to help the person function better. So the first element is the adaptive information processing model itself that informs understanding the history of the person and the history of their symptoms. Mm -hmm. The second element is attachment theory. And as I mentioned briefly earlier, I think attachment organization can predict a lot, not everything, but a lot about how different individuals respond during reprocessing and also how people respond during history taking. You know, some people are able to give a very coherent, concise, forthright description of their life experiences. Those people tend to have a secure attachment history whose narratives are well-structured, well-organized. But some people come in and they have a lot of difficulty even recognizing that their histories have anything to do with any of their current problems. Mm-hmm. And people tend to have a, a, an avoidant attachment organization. And they can be much more challenging to work with because they don't really have a connection with their inner emotional lives. It's hard for them to connect to their past. It's hard for them to connect to their emotions. 
although they can sometimes connect to the physical sensations. And that, that's sometimes all that the indoor therapist is going to be able to find out from them. And, and other people have more of a, of a resistant, ambivalent early experience with a preoccupied adult attachment organization. And these individuals, when you are getting their history, they, they just have a, an endless stream of terrible things that have happened and no one understands how much they've suffered. And the therapist starts to feel overwhelmed because this person is just in so much pain and so much agony and is so desperate for immediate relief. I want EMDR today. You know, fix me today. And, and yet if the therapist uh, jumps in really quickly and begins to do reprocessing with someone with this type of attachment organization, they may find that the person just jumps from one memory to another memory and it's very hard to get anything done. Um, mm -hmm. There's a big risk of more incomplete sessions and they may or may not have access to some of the resource experiences that they need in order to have effective reprocessing. Yes, yeah, so we're really talking about two ends of the continuum here. You know, you started out with um, someone with a coherent narrative, which we now would um, give us an idea that they may be secure in their attachment classification. And um, it certainly increases the likelihood that they might have a secure organization. Yeah. And um, then we have the, the one end of the continuum of, you know, there, there, there's not enough information. Um, and the, the, the reason we have the dismissing classification called dismissing and with adults is because they're dismissing of attachment experiences. <laughs> so again, like you were saying, they may not be able to, if I'm understanding you correctly, come up with some of the material to work with. Um, well, it's not unusual that these individuals may tell you, well, I don't really have any memories from before the age of 12 or 13. So they're right. dismissing in terms of their attachment history, but in the process of, of developing an adult dismissing attachment, they began as avoidant, and the avoidant infant, the avoidant child, has learned not to broadcast their emotions into the environment. So they stop showing their emotional state on their face and in mm -hmm. their voice, and mm -hmm. then they stop feeling their emotional state, so they can either show it in their face or feel it internally. These are the infants during the strange situation who, when their mothers left the room, appeared to be completely placid and calm. And it wasn't until the later strange situation research follow-up studies that they attached heart rate monitors and discovered they weren't placid and calm. Their heartbeats were racing out of control. They just weren't showing their distress in their faces and in their body movements, highly dysregulated internally if they don't show it on the outside. Mm -hmm. And so these individuals can be activated to the point of feeling out of control without showing it in their faces, without even being aware of it until the moment they say, I got to get out of here. And they get up and they leave the room. Mm -hmm. or, so, so I think understanding these aspects of attachment organization is essential to recognizing who is in the room with me. What are the basic issues that we're going to be dealing with the big picture in organizing an approach to the therapy? Even before you think about a list of targets, just what is the fundamental approach? Dolores Mosquera and I have talked about this in a Andrea presentation that we gave on understanding the impact of attachment across all eight phases of EMDR therapy. And it 
it impacts not just within the reprocessing, but in how you organize history taking from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it, it's just so important what you're saying, because what you are seeing in front of you, especially with a person with, uh, who leans more towards dismissing, as you're saying, is not really the true picture of what's going on. And then we have AAIs that, that we give um, at Chaddock where I work, where so much information is given that, that the clinician is starting to forget what the question was that they even asked in the AAI protocol. Uh, so what does that present as a, as a dilemma or a problem for the EMDR clinician? Well, these are the individuals who have more of a preoccupied uh, attachment organization, and they get activated into negative emotional states and tend to jump from one topic to another. Not all of them, but a significant percentage present with what's usually called borderline personality disorder traits. And so in the beginning, they can be desperate and treat the therapist as someone really special, someone who's going to be able to help them, but like no one else has been able to help them before, but they can turn on a dime and suddenly start to attack the therapist and derogate the therapist as not understanding them, not recognizing how much pain they're in, thinking that they should be better already, and that, you know, they're very attuned to subtle changes in therapists' uh, facial expressions and, and voices, and therapists can feel overwhelmed sometimes by the amount of material and the pace of the material. Uh, and if they launch into doing reprocessing with individuals like this, because that's what they're demanding very early on, the therapist can have one incomplete session after another and working really hard, but the patient isn't necessarily making any progress. Mm. So there's much more need to create structure on the part of therapists and to use containment strategies and to have a structured approach to the treatment with individuals who have a preoccupied organization. Otherwise you're gonna get lost. You'll be, you'll be wandering around the woods, not even sure which direction you're facing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so again, this has to do sometimes with the background of the therapist because some therapists come to EMDR therapy with a humanistic orientation and they're used to just following the client wherever they go. Mm -hmm. And when they start to do EMDR with someone with a preoccupied attachment, the therapist can just get lost in, in the woods. Uh, some therapists come from more of a cognitive behavioral background and are more used to using some sort of a structured format in the work, uh, but they're not necessarily used to dealing with emotion the way we have to when we're doing EMDR therapy. So there's a lot of challenges that therapists can have depending upon their previous training and orientation and some don't even recognize that attachment even means anything. The third element that I mentioned in terms of case formulation is the theory of structural dissociation of the personality, which often comes into play with individuals who have an unresolved, disorganized attachment uh, classification. Uh, and, and these individuals may have hidden uh, forms of dissociative disorders that are not at all obvious when people initially walk in the door. They may have apparently normal parts of their personality who present for treatment who seem to be just like every other patient. But when you start doing EMDR therapy with them, weird things start to happen and you can cause a lot of unintended side effects. And 
from as early as um, 1991, articles were published warning clinicians to screen patients for whether or not they might have a dissociative disorder. Unfortunately, a lot of EMDR therapists don't do that. They don't screen patients. And if they do screen them, they may only use the dissociative experiences scale, the DES-2, which is a very weak instrument. And therapists can incorrectly assume that if the DES-2 score is low, then that just means that the person does not have a dissociative disorder, even if the history of the person suggests that they were exposed to severe early neglect and chronic abuse and may well have a dissociative disorder. If the DES is low, they go, I'm home free. I don't have to worry about it. So I think it's essential that clinicians also understand about structural dissociation, how to identify the presence of subtle but, but potentially complex dissociative disorders. Clinicians are not trained in how to do this in graduate school and in most EMDR trainings, they're not trained in how to assess dissociative disorders. Mm -hmm. So they'll watch into doing EMDR with someone who actually has an unresolved, disorganized adult orientation in, in their attachment system, but actually has a dissociative disorder. So these are the three elements. It's AIP, attachment organization, and structural dissociation that, to me, come together to inform case formulation. And you need all three of those elements working together to have a strong, cohesive case formulation in order to produce the most effective EMDR therapy to reduce the risk of side effects and, and to be able to understand what's happening when you're doing EMDR therapy. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as you were talking about the uh, disorganized classification, which, of course, I was going to ask you about, you know, when, when we're talking about the other two, you know, and thinking about um, you were talking about the baby in the strange situation, the avoidant baby, and you can't see it on the outside. Um, also in the strange situation, the behavior of the parent that causes disorganization in the baby can be, as you're saying, very subtle. It's very small um, things that are happening with the parent that go by very quickly um, that I think that some people are thinking, wow, this, this person, if they have dissociative issues is going to not be very high functioning and, and they're going to be, you know, chronically having problems. That's not always the case. Um, and I think I, I appreciate you emphasizing that um, this is not always un easily uncovered by um, different instruments that we're using. I think that that's a very good caution. <laughs> um, so I appreciate your, your sharing about that. I actually just had a colleague um, email me some of the research by Bibi and co-authors uh, specifically on this topic that you're mentioning that subtle forms of misattunement between a parent and a child, um, you know, between the ages of, of four and, and eight months uh, can actually produce uh, disorganized, disoriented responses in the infant. It doesn't have to be what Leoti referred to as frightened or frightening parental behaviors to produce disorganized, disoriented responses in the infant. It can simply be small moments of misattunement that occur re you know, repeatedly, and it can be fairly subtle. Um, Bibi's research was in upper middle class families. Mm -hmm. And they had a 20% rate of uh, disoriented uh, attachment organization in stable upper middle class households where there was no abuse and no overt neglect. But 
these chronic moments of misattunement. So that tends not to produce complex dissociative disorders such as dissociative identity disorder, but it can produce a vulnerability to severe states of depersonalization, derealization that can certainly be very painful for individuals when they're triggered, either in normal daily life, but especially when you attempt to do EMDR reprocessing, the risk of triggering a person into that kind of a state is much greater. And yet the therapist might not be recognizing that this is an individual who's vulnerable to those kinds of states because they don't do a thorough enough assessment. I think just one other piece to add about BB's research to emphasize how subtle this can be is that she discovered that by microanalysis, where she broke videos down into like tenths and one hundredths of a second before she was able to really see, oh, this is what is happening. So again, I think that you know, not that we're all going to be able to do microanalysis of interactions with our clients, but again, it's that understanding that this is not easily picked up and that we should be very aware and very sensitive to these kind of things going on with our clients. Yes. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, we have a, a little bit more time here. I think another thing that, that often comes up um, with clients with um, insecure attachment uh, background is um, trying to find safe place and these other kinds of things that we do normally in the EMDR protocol. I mean, what what, what do you do when people say, I don't know, I don't know of a safe place. I can't conjure up a safe place. You know, what, what would you say to that? Well, many individuals were raised in environments where there was no place of safety. They didn't have an experience that their bedroom was safe or that the backyard was safe or that the playground was safe. Um, so there are limits to referring to this idea of, of there being a safe place. Um, years ago, I gave up referring to the safe place at all. And I talk about a calm place. But even so, many individuals don't have experiences of ever being calm. They have been chronically dysregulated. And so this, this was part of what led to the development um, in the mid-90s of what I called resource development and installation. And these are other kinds of life experiences that a person has had uh, that may be more useful forms of a resource rather than a safe place. And individuals who have the uh, preoccupied uh, type of attachment organization often respond very well to resource installation procedures, whether it's a memory of a time when they felt strong and capable, whether it's a memory of a time when a friend was supportive and encouraging, um, whether it's a, a symbol of uh, a faith from their religion. There, there are many different kinds of resources that, that individuals who have more of a preoccupied organization can respond to very positively. And so a limited amount of resourcing work can be really helpful for these individuals. The, the interesting thing has been those who have more of a dismissing attachment don't necessarily respond as consistently or as we might expect them to to certain kinds of resources. Some of them can respond okay to mastery memories, focusing on times when they were strong and successful and things they feel good about. But um, 
those who have a, a, a dismissing orientation often have a, a, a counter-dependent stance in life. They, they don't see themselves as ever wanting to depend on other people. And so a therapist who's unaware of the significance of attachment organization might see an anxious person with a preoccupation sorry, with a dismissing orientation and try to install a soothing other. But the person with the dismissing orientation is allergic to the idea of depending on someone else and this will actually blow up in the therapist's face. Mm -hmm. And I've had an experience of that happening before I began this research attachment organization. So the kind of stabilization interventions that EMDR therapists offer should be selected based on the attachment organization as well as the possibility of dissociative disorder. But to do that, you have to first study attachment to be able to understand how it affects the process of therapy. So there's different kinds of, of stabilization uh, interventions. Resourcing is certainly one of them. Uh, a lot of people who have more of the dismissing orientation are often people who may function really well in life. They may have positions of responsibility. They may be looked up to by people in their organization. They may get lots of accolades and appreciation, but they don't let it in. They, 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 they continue to have a, a negative self-image in spite of the fact that they're often quite competent individuals. And this eventually led me to realize that they had a kind of like an allergy to shared moments of being connected with other people. And so I developed a procedure to help them with that called the positive affect tolerance protocol, which is specifically for people who have more of this dismissing organization who get compliments, get appreciation, get warmth from people, but don't actually let it in. They just, they, 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 they dismiss it. They distract attention away from it, or they may give a superficial response of saying, thank you, that's nice, but not mm -hmm. really let it in. So they need to actually learn how to let that in. This is a very stabilizing intervention if they can learn how to accept the moments of connection that are offered to them every week in their lives, they then become much more responsive to standard EMDR reprocessing. So different kinds of stabilization interventions in the early phases of therapy can be selected based on people's attachment organization. I mean, those who have more of the, those who have more of the un, unresolved disorganized attachment, um, uh, there's different kinds of things, but one of the things that I think is really helpful is something that Jim Knight pioneered called the loving eyes procedure where the um, adult part of the person is asked to look at the child part who was neglected or abused in childhood and to look at the child part with eyes of love and acceptance. And if the client can do that, if, if they can do that exercise during bilateral stimulation, it's very predictive that they'll be responsive when you do standard reprocessing. But if the adult part of the self feels disgust or revulsion towards the child part, Things are not going to go very well when you try to do standard reprocessing. And so different kinds of interventions in the stabilization phase can be selected based in part on the attachment organization of the individual. That's fascinating. Um, you know, I was thinking when you were speaking, when you first started talking about dismissing um, characteristics, you know, maybe finding something that somebody feels really um, 
you know, capable or, or competent or, or good at. Um, it's different when somebody is in that classification because a lot of times that's a defense. Like they're saying, you know, this happened to me, but it made me a better person or my parents did this to me. And so I'm glad because now I'm, you know, really able to handle life on my own. And so it's almost like it's, it's a form of their defenses that, that they're giving rather than something that's a functional thing that will help them. Right. That's true. Um, that uh, the sense of competence that a person has can be a defense against sense of low self-worth. Yes. Nevertheless, that is the persona that presents for treatment. Right. And sometimes we need to strengthen that persona to be strong enough to tolerate what we're going to go, what we're going to be doing when we do EMDR therapy. Right. And so then it's a phased model in which we gradually uh, approach uh, dealing with experiences that that persona might not tolerate so well. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so I can imagine people listening to this um, are thinking a couple of things. <laughs> One, oh my, you know, I've been um, doing EMDR and maybe I don't know enough about attachment or haven't been considering this enough. Um, and maybe wondering, you know, what additional kinds of training, what, what things could I be looking at um, in order to become more aware, more educated, and more sensitive to how this will overall uh, impact my EMDR treatment with folks. So, you know, what, what do you recommend? What, what's out there? What have you done um, that you could tell people about and other things that you're aware of? Well, I think different people have different preferred formats for learning. Some people uh, prefer to go to a workshop and to listen to a presenter. And some people prefer to read. Uh, some people prefer to look at video casts where they can pause and go back and review things. So I think a lot of what's going to be best for different clinicians depends upon their learning preferences. Um, for myself, the, the journey that I've been on has primarily been one of scholarly reading. I've mostly just delved into the primary publications on attachment and just studied the heck out of that. Um, uh, some presenters, people like Alan Shore, um, Dan Siegel, I think have also been influential on, on my development of understanding, but the nuances of understanding attachment research to me has involved a lot of reading. Um, the book that I think has given me the most is uh, Cassidy and Shaver's Handbook of Attachment, which fortunately now is available in soft cover in the second edition. Uh, when I first got it, it was only hardcover and quite expensive, but um, it's got so many different sections, many of them with direct clinical uh, benefit. So that's, that's a book that I think I, I highly recommend. Um, a good introduction, if you're EMDR trained, I think is Deborah Wesselman and Ann Potter's journal article that came out in the uh, Journal of EMDR Practice and Research in 2009. And because it's an older article, it's open access called Change in Adult Attachment Status Following Treatment with EMDR, Three Case Studies. And she gives a good brief introduction to attachment and has some additional uh, references that she refers to for more information. I think EMDR therapists will find that that is a good article because it shows, I think quite remarkably, 
that uh, EMDR therapy can lead to change in adult attachment classification as measured on the AAI, mm-hmm. which is something that normally takes years and years of psychotherapy mm-hmm. uh, to produce those kinds of changes. As a trained AAI coder, you recognize that you know in, in just a few months of therapy to achieve change on the AAI results is a significant accomplishment. Yes, yes. So I think that uh, those are um, uh, some some good um, uh, resources for people who like to um, to read. Um, if you have a chance to um, attend any of the workshops uh, that Deborah Wesselman offers, uh, they're mostly focused on the treatment of children, but they're excellent presentations and there are webcasts of, of her work available that I think are very accessible. So again, I think it depends upon the learning style of the clinician which way they're going to approach this. And it just takes, I think, immersing yourself over time. It's, it's not something that one simple article or, or reading one chapter in a book is going to help organize your thinking about this. It takes a period of study over, a pe- I think, a period of several years to immerse yourself in this and to think about what's happening and to try to understand what's going well and what's not going well in your cases. It can also help to have a consultant who uses an attachment ori- orientation in their EMDR therapy. So you can consult about those issues and, and, and start to delve into attachment organization in the patients that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And I, you know, in addition to learning styles, I think it can also depend on someone's budget. Um, you know, going to actual conferences can be expensive. Um, however, there's lots of recordings from Andrea. I have purchased yours before. Um, lifespan learning where Dan Siegel and many others present out there every year at UCLA. They probably have every recording attachment related that they've done. Um, So yeah, I think, I think that, that there are a variety of ways. And um, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's really changed dramatically in the last decade is, is that there's been a resurgence of, um, awareness of the importance of attachment issues and so many more resources available in the last 10 years for clinicians who want to learn more about the significance of attachment orientation, both in the area of treating children and families, as well as the individuals who come to us for adult psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And I think um, you've been a little modest not to talk about some of the resources that you have available and the courses and things. So, I mean, I would definitely, if you could share with people, I know you have some online courses. I know you presented at Andrea. Could you share a little bit more about how people could access some of that? Right. I do offer um, some online courses for Andrea credits and continuing education through the website andrewleads.net. And I also believe in making my presentations available free of charge. So on the resources page, there are a large number of handouts from conference presentations that you can download free of charge. All you have to do is give me your email address on the website and um, that will add you to my newsletter automatically if you download any of the handouts you don't have to pay a penny for any of those handouts but many of those are also available with either audio recordings or video recordings i've given um, a presentation on case formulation issues and emdr therapy uh, that's available for uh, andrea credits or if you just want to read the handout at andrewleads.net and i do offer consultation groups both groups that qualify for uh, MDRIA certification hours 
and an advanced group for complex cases where hours don't count towards certification. And people can learn more about that at the website emdrconsultation.net. All right. Uh, so. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really wonderful. Um, and I, I appreciate, having, appreciate having your time today and um, look, look, look forward to, to looking at some of these resources and continuing to hopefully encourage people to delve more into really studying attachment and the impact it has on the work that we do. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to traumaattachmentcenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.